Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now coming up on today's episode is a guest that I could only ever dream of having on this podcast. It's from a band that I have loved for over 25 years. Today, I'm joined by the guitarist from the absolutely incredible band Blind Melon. Yes, I'm joined by Christopher Thorne. This for me is an absolute dream come true. We get to sit down and talk all about the band's legacy, what it was like to be there during the ups and downs of the Blind Melon days, and how it was dealing with the death of the absolute genius that is Shannon Hoon. It gets emotional, it gets very in-depth, and for me personally, after five years of doing Mark and Me, it's my favorite interview that I've ever done. And we also get to talk all about their brand new film, All I Can Say, which is right now showing in cinemas. And if you're lucky enough to have it showing near you, please go and see it. It's the biggest insight to the band from Shannon Hoon himself and is just a work of art. But before we get to that interview in just a couple of minutes time, Let's touch base and talk about episode 193. I was joined by Jake Taylor, the vocalist and songwriter from the amazing band In Heart's Wake. The episode's only been out a couple of days, but it's already one of my most downloaded episodes that I've done. And I just want to say a massive thanks to Jake and In Heart's Wake for sharing this on all your social media networks because it's made a massive difference and the numbers have gone through the roof. But today is a huge one for me. Being such a huge fan of Blind Melon, honestly, this is unbelievable. I think we need to now just get straight to it. So here's me and Christopher Fawn talking all things Blind Melon. So Chris, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks for having me. Chris, what I want to do today is take it right back to the start. And when you were growing up, can you remember those first albums that you maybe listened to? that made you fall in love with music? Yeah, without a doubt. I have a really specific memory, which I've told before, but I remember the day, uh, I mean, I remember everything about the day. It was like a summer day in Pennsylvania. And I remember my parents had one of those like 70s intercom systems through our house. Oh, wow. You know, where you could, you know what I mean? It was like this funny little thing that was in the wall. We had one on the on the outdoor patio. And I remember the exact moment that Sympathy for the Devil came on and it just felt like it changed all the DNA in my body and made me want to be a different person. I was so afraid, like it scared the hell out of me, but it just gave me a feeling that I just wanted to chase my whole life. You know, whatever that feeling is where you feel like it feels dangerous and it lights you up and you get goosebumps. And uh, so that's one of the earliest memories for me, for sure. And then even before that, my mother played like folk guitar to me as like a really young boy. So those memories really stuck with me as well. Like hearing Jim Croce songs and things like that stuck with me. But the Stones made me want to like really like, oh, okay, yeah, this is for me. And I'm trying to picture at this point, what age are you at this point? Well, when I probably heard Sympathy for the Devil, I might be like 10 or 11 or something. That's so cool. Yeah, like I'm not even playing guitar yet, but like... Hearing that makes me go, whatever that is, I want that the rest of my life. <laughs> whatever that feeling is, I'll be chasing that my whole life. And I have. I've been chasing that song my whole life, you know. 
and that kind of foundation there is unbelievable. You know, people like the the, the Who and the Stones and the Smiths and the Beatles. They they they're legends for their reasons, and to have that as a kind of kind of foundation to build on. I don't know where you go from that. You've started so strong and so well. It's like how I does know. it get much better? Uh, the bar the bar was high, and then of course I fell in love with Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. Made me want to be a guitar player. And- yeah. And the Beatles, all the obvious ones, honestly. Bob Dylan was huge for me. and uh, But it was really that sympathy for the devil where I just felt like a change happened in me that moment. Like, I'd say that for sure. So at that moment, I know you're only 10 or 11 and you're listening to these records and thinking this is, something's changed, something's happened inside. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I suppose, I'm not sure if you're thinking maturely enough at that age, but are you thinking to yourself, I'm actually going to start a band. I'm actually going to play an instrument. I'm actually not going to go and do a nine to five. I want to be like this. Yeah. I made, I made that commitment to myself as, as a matter of fact, like I've been keeping a journal since I was like in the seventh grade or something crazy. And I came across like a piece of paper that almost, almost looked like a contract I made with myself. And that's exactly, exactly it. What you just said. And uh, what I call it now is living a life like a pirate. You know, there's the nine to five and everybody else I call a pirate, whether you're a dancer, a, you know, do radio, whatever you, you, you just didn't buy into this is what I have to do in life. Cause this is what they told me. So I remember having a profound moment where, you know, saying to myself, I'm going to chase this music thing the rest of my life. I'm not going to stop until it happens for me. Like I made such a commitment. It was everything that I wanted. I was hyper focused. I was laser focused on it, I would say. I love it. And it all yeah. changes. I mean, I remember getting my early albums. I'm just 40 now. So for me, it was like Guns N' Roses, Usual Illusion, Nirvana Nevermind, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. All those kind of bands came through. And it wasn't until I saw a band live that I realized the impact that music can have. I, now I've completely changed and I can listen to vinyl and it takes me somewhere that sure. nothing else can. But what was your sure. first band that you remember seeing that you kind of had that shake of your rib cage and that kind of bass and that mm-hmm. whole vocal performance in front of you when you thought music is actually alive, it's in front of me? Well, I mean, like my earliest, earliest memories are seeing like, I think one of my first shows was seeing Sonny and Cher. Oh, wow. I was not expecting that. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as an early kid, but, you know, even though that wasn't like thumping 808 bass and, you know, you know, it didn't have fire and sort of stuff like that. It hit me as seeing that connection, you know, in an arena with two people entertaining people was a profound moment. And then I also saw I saw John Denver and wow. just seeing that I think it was like the connection and like the love that I saw them receiving. I was yeah. like, wow, that's in more love than anyone should ever get in their life. And I want that the rest yeah. of my life, you know? And then as I got older, like some of my first shows were like, I saw ACDC and, you know, and that was profound, you know, just that was the actual like, oh, wow. Yeah. Rock and roll. Is I, I don't think I've ever seen a band louder than ACDC. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm still recovering now. My ears aren't quite the same. <laughs> I saw ZZ Top early on too. There was this place called City Island in Pennsylvania where we'd go and and watch these bands. And I remember seeing uh, ZZ Top really, really blew my mind as well back back in those days. I'm extremely jealous. I never got to see them and it's now obviously not possible. So I'm a bit like, ah, oh, damn it. Yeah, yeah, we got to, Blind Melon got to play with them. We, we had the same management for a while. So we wound up playing some shows with them and it was fantastic. 
So after you've gone and seen these bands and you've got this real kind of desire, but you've told yourself that you've kind of got this unofficial contract to yourself and a commitment that you want to make that's going to make sure that you don't go and do a retail job or this. Exactly. What was the moment that you remember kind of forming an early band? Maybe it was at college or school that you thought, this is this is now a reality. This is not just a dream. This is something that I'm going to really go and grab by the horns and ride. By the time I was probably 15 or 16, maybe 15, because I remember not driving. I remember getting picked up. So around that time, 15, 16, um, I uh, was in this band called, you know, like ROT or something. It was like <laughs> super heavy. Like in Pennsylvania, like I was listening to Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, but everyone around me, this is the late 80s or mid late 80s. So it's like metal is still like really going strong, you know? But I didn't really love metal, but where I lived, I really didn't have a choice. If I was going to play music with friends, they were all it was all going to be metal, you know? Yeah. So that's my first band, um, this band called ROT. And we made a demo and, you know, got in some magazines. It was like my first little, like, taste of like, oh, wow, cool. And also my first taste, I had a hustle because we made a demo and me and my wife, I had an aunt who lived in Los Angeles. We come out to L.A. And this is like in the mid, you know, the mid 80s. 86, 86, 87, maybe 86, something like that. And uh, we come out and we go to like El Segundo, which is a pretty funky neighborhood. And I like drop off a demo at some dude's house. Some guy had like a record company in his house, you know? So that was my first sense of like learning how to hustle and get out there. And like, it's not just about making great records. You got to figure out the hustle part or else you don't, or else you don't really have a career in the music business. So I learned that right away as well, you know, and that early band was really a great experience because, you know, we made flyers. We went out and put flyers around town. We would rent a fire hall for, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks and charge our friends five dollars and have like concerts and, fi and, and fire halls and stuff. So it was a really fun time. It wasn't the music I loved. But shortly after that, I decided I had to go to L.A. if I really wanted to do it. And I really wanted to give it every option and you know, and give myself every possibility. I knew I had to get to LA. Nobody I knew from Pennsylvania had a record deal. That's not something you ever heard. No. I didn't know anyone who was an artist. I didn't know anyone who painted for a living or like, like made sculptures for a living. I didn't know anyone like that. So I moved to LA in uh, 1988. Wow. And did your, I mean, at that age, did you have the backing of your family or are they like, look, you need to get a real job or are they like, no, go. We can see how much this means to you. If you don't do it now, you never will. Or were they like, seriously, son, this is a fucking huge risk. No, they were. My parents are amazing and super supportive. My dad was crushed because I think he had a, <clears throat> a different version. You know, I think he wanted me to stay around and he's like, if you stay around, we'll do real estate and. <laughs> you know, make sure you're, you know, you do really well and like you could retire by the time you're 35 or you stay here. And like none of that was important to me. Money wasn't important to me. I was chasing my dream. So with that in mind, they were super supportive. You know, I paid my way, but they were always there every time I fell and needed a net. My parents were right there to go like, OK, we'll send you 1500 bucks or whatever. You know, <laughs> they were so supportive. And most of all, my high school sweetheart came out with me, who I'm still married to. So that's incredible. Um, yeah, I had like a partner in crime at all times, and I don't know that I would have had the the balls <clears throat> to do it without her. But I always had her, her there going, no, man, we can do this. We can do this together, you know. So we, me and uh, Heather, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, moved out in, uh, in 1988. Wow. And then is this the start of when you're then starting to meet other musicians that are like-minded, and this is how Blind Men informs? 100 percent like back in those days pre-internet there was a 
magazine called the music connection and you just i placed an ad in the music connection like hey you know new guy in town you know i like led zeppelin and bob dylan and you know the who and you know the, the typical you know typical ad and then from there uh brad smith called me who's the bass player from blind yep. melon and um we became fast friends and then maybe like six months eight months later he called and said man i just met the most incredible amazing singer ever and you need to come meet him and that's when i went over and i met shannon wow you must have kind of had to pinch yourself the first time you hear shannon's vocals because i was god i'm showing my age but i was 10 so i was really getting i, I can't try and even claim to be cool and say i was listening to blind men at 10. it was probably about 14 15. a group of my friends love pearl jam they're like check this band out the nice. moment we started the album and i hit play and soak the sin started it was like fucking hell i've never heard anything like this in my life it, you know i was listening to red hot chili peppers i was listening sure. to pearl jam and then yeah. this was something completely different and the yeah. moment i heard shannon's vocals i was like it's that eddie vedder kind of moment i was like yeah. oh my god this isn't just any band so to be there for you and to go and meet this guy tell me about your first meeting i, I went over there and i remember <clears throat> just immediately he was like, I loved reading autobiographies of like any rock star. You know, I read, you know, anyone that came out, I just was obsessed with all things rock and roll. So like in my mind, I had a very specific image of what the lead singer is supposed to be. I was reading about Jim Morrison and reading about, you know, uh, you know, Mick Jagger and blah, blah, all the greats. Right. So I walk in and I meet Shannon and, and he literally is right out of one of those books I was reading. I mean, he truly was like, you know, people want to say like, oh, did you have success? And he became a rock star. I'm like, that motherfucker was a rock star the day I met him. He was That's a amazing. rock star when he was doing construction. I guarantee yeah. in Indiana, he was still a rock star. He engulfed the entire room with so much incredible energy and charisma. And he looked, you know, he was handsome and he just made everybody laugh. And so I'll never forget going home that night. First of all, he played me Change. <clears throat> wow. Which was a song that he had written. And I, I had been writing songs but I wasn't fully developed as a songwriter like that. You know what I mean? I wasn't delivering a change yet. That's for no. sure. And then he also played me Jane's Addiction. We were all really obsessed with Jane's Addiction. Like that was our band, you know? Um, so he played me change and Jane says, and I'll never forget going back that night um, to my wife. Cause I was like auditioning with other people. So I had a couple options at that time. Somebody yeah. else had asked me to be in a different band called the Daisy Chamber at that, at that moment. Um, so I remember going back to my wife and saying, uh, I, I think I called him like, you know, he's like, he's the golden child, you know, he's, he's everything that you would ever expect a singer to be, you know, I just knew immediately he was it, you know? So sh surely at that moment, all the other auditions or stuff that you might've considered probably just went, fuck this. Like this is, if I'm not going to work with anyone else now, this is it. Cause this guy can sing. I've got my yeah. bass player. I've got me. We're, yeah. we're, we're almost there, you know. Exactly right. And, and by then, uh, Rogers had come out because, uh, uh, you know, Brad and Rogers grew up in the same hometown. So Rogers by then had come out. Uh, so we, you know, we nearly had a band and we were working with a local L.A. drummer before Glenn came out. So immediately we were like a band and we just started, we jumped right in and started writing songs and immediately came, you know, great friends. And, and it just became a family really, really fast. And then Honestly, we got a deal pretty quick. You know, we never played a live show before we had a record deal. It happened really fast for us. 
That's I astonishing, think, isn't it, now, to think that you didn't really go out there. Is. No showcase, nothing. Just got the deal, and then, right, we need to work. We did We did do showcases. We did private showcases for, like, 10 record companies and got a deal from that, basically. We had Amazing. one demo on a four-track, and uh, that got passed around with this. We had an attorney named Dennis Ryder who was really great at winding the, the business up. I love it. And uh, he wound everybody up. But I think as soon as you got in the room with Shannon and you heard us play Change – you know, we already had one good song at that point. And I think that's all it, it took for people to go, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll make a bet on you, you know, which is really what it is. They're just making a bet on you, you know. And with that album, obviously, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but every song on there could be a single. They're the songs, the melodies, the choruses, everything about it, the production. But to work with Rick Parashar, wasn't it, for the debut? And yeah. his production is up there with like Andy Wallace for me. It's it's so fresh. It sounds so good. You you can't say to me that's a '90s record. It could be released yesterday. It still sounds so great. The kit sounds great. The snare, the guitar tones, and that's what you want. And to work with this guy, it must have been everything you'd wanted because you've gone out there with a mission. You're surrounded by some incredible musicians and people, and you're recording these songs that just sound timeless. Yeah, that was a really, I remember, uh, I think Rogers even pointed this out. I was obsessed with the record being dry. Yeah. Because for me, what dates a record, especially in the late 80s going into the 90s, we had a digital reverb. Before that, we were Fucking so annoying. Reverbs, yeah. Right? So before that, we it. have all this. Play. Me too. So <clears throat> coming into the 80s, you know, 90s, we're making a record in 91. <laughs> all those digital reverbs are still around. And they're still being used on some of those records in the early 90s. Some of those records don't hold up to me because they do sound a little dated. So for yeah. me, I was obsessed with the White Album and Incredible. everything being super dry. So to me, if you listen to that record, it's just dry, dry, dry. And I think that's why it is timeless because you don't have any of the modern technology with a digital reverb or some new trick that was happening during yeah. that time. It's really recorded like a record in the 70s, which was really our... That was our map. You know what I mean? We loved all music from the 60s and 70s. So that's what we were kind of chasing. So I feel lucky that that when I put on that record, I'm not embarrassed and it does feel timeless to me. And, you know, I do. I do have to say it does feel that way. You know, we never talked about singles and we never even had the discussion about singles. We just wrote songs. Yeah. And that was that. And we never even I don't even remember having discussions really with the record company so much about singles. It's crazy, isn't it? Because there was that whole time in the 90s where it was all singles, it was big music videos on MTV and stuff. But for those, you know, for you to sit there and not have that discussion, but obviously the label and everything behind closed doors. They were having it. We just, they know. weren't having it with us. You it's know crazy, I mean? isn't it? It's just, you know, let them do all that and we'll just concentrate on writing good music. That was the 90s was, you know, let the band be a band. And yeah. they really were hands off in the greatest way. And as much credit... I want to give a lot of credit to Rick Parasher because he made an incredible record with us. But the one interesting decision he made was to stay out of our way. He was not there much at all during the making of that record. When he was there, he made it count. And what Rick was great about was, you know, we were a bunch of brothers kind of fighting like brothers do. And Rick was this sort of Buddha to us. And he helped us communicate as band members better. I would say that's where he was really useful to, her, to us. But most of the time, he really wasn't there. He played tennis during the day, mostly. I love and it. And then at night, he'd come in, and he made it count with Shannon. He cut the vocals with Shannon. But I don't have any memories of cutting my guitars with Rick. But Rick did an amazing job 
he saw that no rain was special. I remember yeah. him spending a little extra time on that before anyone knew that song was special. It felt like Rick knew it was special. And, and again, um, yeah, the clean guitar on that, it's got more power than any overdrive, any sort of distortion. It's got that cleanness that is so pure, is so yeah. natural, and it's got clarity, it's got everything. And I listened to it today just because I knew we were interviewing tonight again, just to think, why not? And it just yeah. sounded like it was recorded yesterday. It's very ungrunged too, which I think is why, you know, it, it stuck out and, you know, we got noticed, I think is because we didn't sound like everybody else. We were lumped into the grunge scene, but yet we didn't sound like grunge in any way. No, so, it's strange. You know, I, don't, I don't class you guys as grunge, but you are. It's so odd. We are only because of the time period. I think it's because our peers were grunge. So we get, we get, we get thrown into that category. But when you analyze our music, uh, we were not influenced by those same things that that the guys in Seattle were, were influenced by. I mean, some sim similar things, but we didn't really have that same punk edge that those guys had. We came from a little more of the, the hippie side, I would say. And then obviously in 95, you got to work with the genius Andy Wallace. And one of my Love favorite it. albums of all time is uh, Jeff Buckley Grace. And one of my all-time favorite records without ever. a doubt. Yeah, absolutely yeah. astonishing. Um, and... To know that you've had the brains behind the album work with yourselves, it just must be an absolute honor every minute that you're within his company and getting him to get that sound that only Andy Wallace can get. You know, Andy, on the other hand, was 100% hands-on. Yeah. You know, compared to Rick. Like, Andy was there every day, all day. And uh, I learned, you know, I wanted to be a record producer around that time, so I was like, asking Andy for all of his tips and having him explain stuff to me. And he was so kind and so wonderful. And honestly, I don't know, we never would have been able to make that record without Andy. Cause that was, you know, the, the drugs had kicked up a notch during that record. And it was a bit, it was uh, mayhem, I would say, making that record. It was yeah. not, not easy. And Andy made an incredible record. We all loved, still do love and absolutely adore Andy Wallace. We learned a lot from him. He was incredible. Did you feel pressure as a band because of the success behind stuff like No Rain and the debut album and then to try and top it and the label probably then getting a lot more involved and trying to elevate you to another level? Were you kind of like, I always think of bands like yourselves and Nirvana after Nevermind, like where do you go next? And you've got this huge song that everyone knows, it's getting radio play all over the world. You must yeah. be thinking, ha, ha, what do we do next? I can't even imagine how you start to process where you go from there. It's possible we should have felt that pressure that you're talking about right now. And maybe it had to do with being sort of young and having some dough in our pockets and feeling immortal and feeling like we could take over the world and having a giant ego. But no, I didn't feel any pressure. I was like, fuck, I'm fucking young and rich. And I'm fucking, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm fucking, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like it would last forever. Like, I wasn't thinking like an adult, like, hey, I should make sure the next one does really well. We were just on a mission to do something different. And we didn't really discuss like, you know, our band never discussed things. We just evolved for that second record. We never just once again, we never discussed singles. There was never to talk about that. There was never Andy Wallace never said, hey, man, why don't you write another 10 more? Because I feel like we could use a better single. No one ever had that discussion with us. You know, I think. People were just yesing us at that time. So I think I, I got the feeling that maybe people felt like they couldn't tell us anything because we were just young and stupid and just sold a million, you know, millions of records. So no one could really tell us anything to do. You know what I mean? But it, but isn't it um, so rare now to have something so organic that can just be left to grow on its own cause without 
everyone getting involved and changing it and trying to make yeah. it something it isn't. It's so rare because everyone, every label now is obviously about trying to get as much as you can from a band that aren't going to have that longevity like you would get from no, a band no. like Pearl Jam and Blind Melon anymore. Yeah, those days are gone. You know, those days are gone. Now, when we did deliver the record, what happened to us is, unfortunately, the uh, president, who was a wonderful guy that we totally love, named um, Hal Milgram, was the president of Capitol. And we were just we just thought the world of him, and he really supported us. Unfortunately, when we went to deliver the soup record, uh, Hal, Hal Milgram was removed from Capitol, as they like to do. And yeah. Gary Gersh came in as president. And quite honestly, just Gary Gersh didn't give a fuck about us. No. So um, that definitely, you know, at that point, uh, Gary was the first person. There was a song called Pool uh, that actually I had written with Shannon. And Gary said, hey, uh, I think this song has uh, single potential, but I think you should edit it. And in our world, in the 90s, we're like, how about yeah. you edit this? You know Fuck what I mean? You. Fuck you. Edit this. Fuck you. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Go away. Go back to your yeah, office. Well, what world are you living in? Now yeah. I realize that was totally naive and completely wrong. And the truth is, you know, as an adult man now, I go, hey, man, if somebody invests millions of dollars in you, they're paying for the right to have an opinion. Yeah. If you don't want someone to have an opinion, then don't take the fucking money, keep your job at the coffee shop, and go make your own record. It's that simple. So, like, I had a different attitude back then. You know what I mean? Like, I, now I see it in a different light. And um, that may have been a mistake, but... We just said, this is the record, whether you like it or not, here it is. And, you know, the record company said, oh, it's so dark. And, you know, I remember hearing that a lot. Oh, the record's so dark. It's so dark. It's so dark. It's like, well, we've been through some dark shit. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Uh, so um, it was a different experience once once Hale Milgram left the company for us. But isn't it better that you have an honest reflection in your sound of the things you're experiencing and then try and force some pop bollocks that isn't you you know there's too many bands now that are writing songs because they've got that catchy chorus that want to be on radio and want to make music videos but you were writing it because that's how you felt shannon was going through a dark time you're not going to be sitting there writing love songs exactly right and i think it's a really honest pure record and i couldn't be more proud of it i was really proud of it when it came out and then everyone told us it was shit and i was like oh really i didn't know this was shit i thought it was really good you know so it was a shock to our system when we got bad reviews on that record but uh, the irony is it's aged incredibly well. And now people seem to think the soup record is a, is a record to be listened to. But when it came out, we, we really, we really took some punches, you know, I just think it's an album that you need to give it the time. It's not going to be that instant first play, right? I'm going to sing along exactly to everything, it. but it's yeah. like anything. If you give it the time it deserves, the payoff is worth it. It has a longer shelf life because it doesn't hit you right away. Maybe. Exactly. You know I mean? Yeah. You need patience. Yeah. And I don't want to drop the tone because I'm really enjoying the pace and everything about today, but I can't ignore the fact that obviously we lost Shannon and it's one of the world's biggest tragedies, I believe, in music, especially like when we've mentioned Jeff Buckley today. It's just awful. And yeah. with the news only last week of Taylor Hawkins, it made me realize of how much of an impact a musician's death can have on you. And it felt like I lost a family member. The last time I felt that low was Tom Petty. And... Too. for you to lose this friend and family and you know it's more isn't it there's a band member is just something that you can't really describe with words but when you went on that tour and you were promoting soup do you wish every day that you just didn't go on that tour now um yeah you know i do but 
it's possible he would have just done drugs at home and died at home. So like, yeah. you know, yeah, like I lived with that guilt for a long time. Like, what the fuck were we thinking? You know, but Shannon is the one who's like, I want to go. Like, yeah. I want to do it. He wasn't, you know, because um, we had we went to go do festivals, you know, months before that. And Shannon pulled the pull the you know, he said, no, we got to go home. I don't feel I don't feel good out here. And we said, no problem. Let's go home. Um, so we would have turned around and, and, and gone back, but I do regret not having the tools at that age to like get mad at him that night when he started doing drugs again. Like, I wish I would have like, sometimes you just were avoiding a fight. You know, the only time I fought with Shannon was when he did when, when, let me clarify the only fought only time I fought with Shannon was when he was doing drugs and I wasn't doing them with him. And yeah. I felt like that wasn't the time for him to do it, which is totally bullshit on my part. But I'm just saying, you know, I didn't do drugs like before shows and things like that, you know. So he was I get into fights with him if he was like doing blow before a show. And we would. so that night, you know, I wish I would have gotten to a fight and stormed off stage and said, fuck you, you're doing drugs. But, you know, it was like, OK, we're back to this world again, you know, because he was doing great for a long time. And then. At some point, he scored drugs in, in L.A. and started doing coke again. And that just, you know, we were back to, like, disaster time. So, honestly, I was kind of avoiding him a little bit. And I regret that, you know. I regret me just, crawl, you know, going to bed that night. He asked me if I wanted to stay up and do coke with him all night. And I said no. And I went to bed. And that's the last I saw him. It's awful, isn't it? Because you're just not on the same page at that moment. And I've been at parties and stuff when someone's on drugs or drinking and the difference of being sober around someone when you're not in the same headspace. It's out. such a contrast. It's like, oh, fuck off. Yeah. 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 Like if you're if you're there doing, you know, line for line with him, then you're both blah, 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 blah. But if yeah. you're not, he's just blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? You're just like, oh, dude, please go to bed, you know. So I suppose that next day when he found out of the, the passing and it, it all kind of becomes reality and the whole world comes crashing down, I suppose you don't even ever think about being in a band again. I suppose you just want to lock yourself. And this is what I'm thinking about Dave Grohl right now. Where do you go when you've lost someone so close? Do you just try and lock yourself away and hope that it was all a dream? Or do you just sit there and try and digest it bit by bit? I don't know how... I hope that if someone's listening today that's suffered or lost someone, how you go about kind of getting back on the right track. Yeah, it was a real tough time, you know, and then you go through all these stages and um, you go through all these stages, which I didn't know really about, you know, like you have total denial. So like every time the phone rang, I just assumed, you know, Shannon was a bit of a prankster, I have to say, like, like it would have been like him to fake a death. Like I'm not, I'm not going to start a fucking yeah. room. Shannon's gone. Unfortunately, Shannon's gone. But when Shannon first passed away, it wouldn't have been unlikely for him to just fuck with us. And, you know, pull some shit on us. So, like, in my mind, I held on to that for I don't know how many days where I was in such denial. I just thought, nah, he's messing with us. You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, and he seemed stronger than all of us. Like, he could always out, you know, he could out party anybody, you know. And I saw him many times way worse than I saw him that night. So, it was yeah. just, it was literally unbelievable, you know. And so, I was in denial for a while. And then, you know, then you go through total sadness and then you get fucking mad and i remember you know saying to people after he passed away uh when i see him i'm gonna kill him for yeah. dying because i'm mad i'm pissed i'm gonna kill him 
is what I used to tell people, you know, just to kind of make light of the terrible situation. Of course. Like, if I find him, I'm going to kill him is what I tell people, you know, like I was mad, you know, I just was mad. It took me a while to get over the mad part, you know, and then you, then you swap between all three at some point that goes on for years where you swap between denial, sadness, and being mad and at any given point, you know, and then that drifts away. And now it's just mostly, ah, I miss you. And it's fun to talk about them, you know? Um, but for me, the only thing I just knew, I, I was so afraid of losing the pirate life, meaning I was yep. so afraid of having a real job and like I worked so hard to get there and then for it to be taken away was so devastating to me. And so like, just like, Oh man, I can't believe I have to start again. Like it was just really tough. And the only way I know how to deal with anything and it's probably not even really, you know, healthy, but I just dove right into production. I just became a producer immediately. I just went right to work. I became a workaholic is what I would say after Shannon died. Um, I had found some people on the road as a producer. I was getting people record deals. So I just, I just became a workaholic for many, many years and just to try to like, you know, not think about it, but it was hard because I'd still hear us on the radio and I'd, you know, walk down the street and you hear it coming out of a store or something. And then, it was a tough time, you know. And then on top of that, I was in Seattle. So it was like fucking raining or cloudy every day. So it made me want to just, you know, it was a tough time. Uh, just uh, depression wise, it was it was it was tough. It was a tough time. And, and now the world are getting to see the documentary. All I can say, the fact that it's like a it's not like any other documentary I've seen. It's so personal. It's this footage that you you never thought would get seen and to be in the band and see this footage of Shannon firsthand and stuff. Is it like going through an old scrapbook and reading a diary? Is it like seeing old photos again that maybe you just didn't know were there or is it just a celebration for you and just a, a nice way of just seeing that time and that life again on the big screen? Man, it's, 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 it's very complex because it's like all the above. Uh, you know, I, I worked on the on the film score in the movie, so I had I had watched it over and over and, you know, I've, I've seen it a lot, you know, and depending on how I felt that day, some days when I went to work on the film score, uh, you know, I had tears in my eyes and I worked for hours with tears in my eyes, just going, fuck, I miss you. I fucking miss you. And it felt good to work on it because I'm sitting there, you know, in my studio and I'm just looking at the scenes and I'm feeling like I get to, I, I felt like I got to hang out with Shannon while I was making the film score. And that was really cool, but it also was painful at times too. And then sometimes I'd go down to work and I just was like, it just, I was like, I felt light and I felt like, Oh, cool. You know, he's going to make me laugh because he would say funny things. And it just depends on how I'm feeling at any given moment. You know, it's complex. It's like nostalgia to, for me is painful. Like when I look at us, my son now who's, 16 i look at a picture of him when he's five i don't know why but it destroys me it's painful it's like the concept of time and like did that really happen and so all those things are wrapped up in it when i'm watching the movie and you know we went to these film screenings and we went to amsterdam right before covid hit and watched the film a few times and you know one time i watched it and i sat right beside rogers and it, you know and it just it just felt like uh wow, this really happened, you know? And it's a little bit of that too. Like you can't believe it really happened. You know, it, everything happened so fast. My whole career is in five years and then it fucking ends over in one night. It just goes away. So for many years, like I would wake up and just go, 
Like, just be confused. Did it happen? Did it not happen? You know what I mean? I'd hear myself telling a story about being on the cover of Rolling Stone or opening up for Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. And then I'd check myself and I'd go, did I make that up over a bong? Like, did I think about that when I was getting high one day? Like, is that real? Does that happen? So it was confusing, I would say. And even to this day, when I watch the film, I'm like, wow, that did happen, right? Like, it feels like I'm looking at it from a different lens, depending on how I feel that day, really. But isn't it good that it's documented that it did happen? It is real. I can verify I've seen it. It isn't in your head. We're here today. And it isn't it nice that you've got something to hold on and revisit and however raw it is and however much sometimes it can either make you smile, make you angry, make you hurt. You've got that. You've got that memory and no one can ever take that from you. I'm beyond grateful. Like, honestly, like when Shannon had that camera out, like I don't really love being on camera. And that was my least favorite thing, I, you know, being in the band interviews and although I don't mind this, this is easy. And now I'm good at it. Now, now I am fine with it. Back then it was like, you know, it was like, Oh God, every time Shannon, get that goddamn camera out of my face. And uh, I regret saying that now because as soon as he passed away, I am beyond grateful that he covered, you know, nearly every minute of our career. I mean, the camera was around at all times, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I couldn't, I, I'm just so grateful that he covered it. You know, he was living life as an artist and I'm glad that I got wrapped up into that. And, and, and I'm filmed by, you know, by just being around him and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm beyond grateful that I, that he filmed everything. So, so when that time comes and it's your turn to go and visit the heavens and see Shannon and he's waiting for you with a cold pint, are you going to hug him? Are you going to punch him? Are you going to squeeze him? What's it going to be like? Because you've I'll got so it. many emotions and you no, miss this no, guy. We, you know, not to sound like too much of a hippie, we get to hang out sometimes, you know, and it's yeah. always a good time. You know That's what I mean? Good. Of I know when he's around and I just, you know, and and all the, those anger feelings have drifted mostly. So now it's really just like, uh, it will be great to see a good old friend. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah. Share that joint and look at those old times. You know what I mean? Like, that's all I want. I just want that moment to hang out with him again, you know? It's going to be a beautiful moment and worth the wait. Yeah, right? No doubt. What I do on the Mark and Me podcast, and I think musicians find this the hardest, is on the outro of every episode, every guest that's been on gets to choose the outro piece of music. Now, I try and keep it original by the fact that every person I've had on has always chosen a different piece of music. So it could be Anthony Hopkins, it could be Mads Mikkelsen, it could be anybody. But everyone has chosen a song that means a lot to them. It's never usually a song by themselves. It's something that they absolutely adore. Now, I feel that you'll struggle with this because you've probably got 20,000 songs you'd like to pick. And then we've got to try and whittle million. it down. Yeah, so we now need to whittle it down to one. But when I ask you the question, what is a song that means a lot to you? Maybe not the most, because that's too hard. But a song that once this is all edited, it's all polished, it's out there for the world to listen to. We wrap the interview up. What's the song that for you is the perfect outro song that would sum up today, you and everything about you? Only Love Can Break Your Heart by Neil Young. Fucking incredible song. So first, fucking good. Thank you. It's the first song I played my son. I got back from the hospital and I held him in my arm. And I played, that was the first song that I played him. And I don't know why, I don't know why in that moment that was the song. But for me, I just thought, oh, this is heartbreaking. That's and incredible. And amazing. It brings tears to my eyes, just the thought, you know. 
It's amazing. Yeah. I've done this podcast for five years and hand on heart, I truly mean this. The moment we started talking today, it never felt like work. It never felt like, is this going to go okay? There's no notes. There's no structure. It just flows. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I could talk to you for days. Yeah, I, I agree. And you're great at what you do, by the way. I could talk to you for days too. Let's hang out in, in London when I get over there. I'm being serious. Let's do it because it's a dream today. And uh, I'll hit you, hit you up on yeah. Instagram. We'll meet in person. We'll just carry this on because I yeah. haven't even scraped the surface. And it's a, honestly, yeah. as a Blind Melon fan, as a music fan, and just talking to people, it's never work. And it's been a pleasure from start to finish today. So thank you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I'll send you my number. Uh, send me an email. I'll send you my phone number. Hook me up. We'll sort it out. Uh, and sort it out. once the world is back to normal, we can have a beer and we can just, you know, uh, reminisce. And I can't wait, dude. That sounds great. Thank Love you it. so much. Good luck with the release. Obviously, I will help promote this in the UK, get people to go and see it on the big screen, which you should do. People don't want to go in unless it's fucking Spider-Man or Batman. Go and watch this documentary and remember yeah. the good times. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 I'm really proud of the film. I couldn't be I'm super happy with it. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. So there it is. There is my interview with me and Christopher. And as I said at the start of the interview, it's easily my favourite that I've ever done on Mark and Me. He's a guest that we've been speaking to since we've done this interview, and we're definitely going to meet up in London and continue this in the very near future. He's been a dream guest, and sometimes you have these high expectations when you get someone that you've dreamed of having on the podcast, and honestly, you smash them all out of the park. You're an absolute amazing person, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Also, I want to dedicate today's episode to a small group of friends of mine. When I was around the age of 15 or 16, I remember going next door to my good friend Ellie's house. We would sit in the garden, have barbecues, have beers, have ciders, and smoke, and listen to bands like Pearl Jam. And because of you guys, you got me into Blind Melon. I remember you playing these albums to me from start to finish and me falling in love with the tones of this band. And honestly, Tracy, Steve, Chris, Kim, Brown, all you guys, I love you all and you got me to fall in love with this band on a whole new level. And for the rest of my life, I'm in debt to you guys for making me fall in love with this band and being so obsessed with their music. So this one's for you guys. And I know you're listening right now and I hope you've enjoyed it and I've done you all proud. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, please share it. Go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and hit that share button. Hit that like button and tell the world to listen because honestly, it's the best marketing tool. I don't have a group of people that I can pay to advertise and promote the podcast. I'm a one-man team and it makes a huge difference. All the links are on markandme.com and I really appreciate it. And if you've really enjoyed today's episode, I do have a Patreon account set up. You can support me from as little as £1 a month. For that, you're going to get some exclusive Patreon-only episodes, some prizes from the amazing guys at Richer Sounds, and some exclusive updates that you will only get for being via Patreon. Please, every little bit of money that you support via Patreon goes right back into the podcast and makes a huge difference. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode. Things aren't slowing down at all. It's been absolutely hectic, but it does mean that you guys at home are getting more and more interviews. So, hey, it's a win-win for everyone. Until then, look after yourself, listen to Blind Melon, and I'll speak to you all very soon.